Is it another microphone? Yes, it is. It's baseball. 1911. He, Hugh, River at the microphone. And um, we're gonna... I, I was do, I've been doing research to see what other newspapers we could find a consistent run of to give more variety. And I think I've found that, well, we may even switch over to this. I'm not sure how that is going to work per se, but um, um, yeah, let's see what we got here. This is the Washington, D.C., Evening Star, and uh, just moving right along in date chronology, this is Thursday, April 6th, 1911, and uh, their sports page is a big headline at the top, livest news and brightest gossip gathered from every branch of sport, and Let's see what we've got here. We're just going to move from left to right in columns because this is a much, I think this is a larger newspaper and hence I am assuming we're going to be able to get more news. And yeah, I mean, just this many baseball briefs, we're going to be covering uh, a lot more of a range. I mean, that other paper we were using had Great New York coverage, although even the Brooklyn team was getting kind of pushed out. Anyways, let's roll along and see how uh, this form of journalism rolls. Honus Wagner, the Pittsburgh star, was a hero of a game in Memphis yesterday. The German batted 1,000, stole third and home, and acted like a star should. The Pirates won the game by a one Four, rather, to nothing score. Well, that's that's the kind of stuff I've been... Now now we're in business. It will be hard to crowd Birdie Cree out of the main show on the hilltop this season if such a thing is contemplated. His lively two and three base stings frequently cause base runners to roll around the paths ahead of him. He has made many timely hits, as they are sometimes called. Ah, and this this is interesting because uh, baseball nomenclature that we are familiar with is in its pioneer days at this point, as if, yeah, me pointing out the obvious. President Frank Farrell of the Yankees and President Herman of Cincinnati have arranged for a series of spring games in 1912. They will be played Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, March 30th, 31st, and April 1st. It is planned to have the new Cincinnati steel and concrete stands opened March 30th. Harry Howell, the former Browns pitcher who was cast out of the American League for having a hand in the La Joie betting fiasco at the close of last season, is being groomed for the first base post on the Louisville American Association team. Howell is doing so well that he may supplant Myron Grimshaw, the regular guardian of that sack. Threatened with pneumonia, Bugs Raymond arose from a sick bed, sick bed in 
Atlanta to spike the imputation that he had waived his rights to the temperance pledge that manager McGraw held over him. Bugs has been in earnest about keeping in the straight and narrow path, and he proved his sincerity by getting in the first game possible and pitching, winning all. Baltimore is after one of McGraw's or Chase's young infielders is probable that when the New York teams play in Baltimore before returning home, that negotiations will be closed for one of the youngsters. Manager Dunn would like to procure Fullerton of the Giants or Roach or Otis Johnson of the Yankees. Interesting. I notice that in Washington, D.C., uh, that they refer to the team as the Yankees. And have we seen them referred to, or heard them, in your case, uh, as uh, the Yankees in their own home team town coverage? Well, I, th- I think the newspaper we were reading was Giants Strong. The Yankees may have had... There were a lot of newspapers back then, dailies, morning papers, papers that had a morning and an extra edition. Um, it, it was a whole world. The newspapers, think of them kind of as the internet of their time. Uh, that's where the information flowed. Uh, there was 1911, there wasn't even radio. World War I is still several years ahead We are in, I mean, to me, a completely strange, nebulous zone, which is part of the excitement. And can you tell? Um, Moving along. Johnny Bates is out of the game for the Reds. Johnny is said to be troubled with a bad hand. But would it surprise you, fans, if Griff was secretly working back to figure out which is the better man? The Reds' leader may suspect that Bates is not as strong as he thought and that Dewan pulled a little something off on him. That's a little cryptic, but uh, perhaps a Reds fan can uh, straighten us out. Detroit fans expect George Stallings to again put Bisonville on the baseball map by winning another Eastern League pennant. Stallings has a formidable-looking group of players, but it is said that he has sufficient promises from major league managers of surplus players that before the season gets started properly, he will have plenty of good men to bring the Buffalo team up to its enthusiasts' expectations. It would be mighty hard luck if the injury to Sheldon Lejeune, the young Brooklyn outfielder which he sustained while automobiling in Knoxville, should affect his work this season. Lejeune led the Central League in batting last season. He won the throwing contest at Cincinnati in the big field carnival two years ago, and his throw has not been approached since. Detroit may be in the National Billiard League next fall. Johnny Kling, who is the... What on earth does that have to do with baseball? Uh, I'm sorry, I just... I'm reading these on the fly. Detroit may be in the National Billiard League next fall. Johnny Kling, who is the proprietor of Big Billiard Parlor in Kansas City, is one of the big moguls in the three-ball league, and he is anxious to have Bill Donovan put Detroit on 
the list. I point well to boy. I'm to pool, boxing, baseball. Let's all go in the back room and smoke some cigars. Um, and because we're just going from left to right, the next is one of those rectangular squibs. A theft of third becomes a prominent ambition. Uh, this report out of Indianapolis, Indiana, April 6th. The influence of George Moriarty's captaincy has been noted this spring in the daring base running of the team in general and the fact that the men seem to steal third as often as second. Moriarty has always believed that third base is, at times, easier to steal than second. Particularly is this believed to be the case when a left-hander is firing for the foe, when men on second and first double steal, with men on second and first, double steals have become regular features of the Tiger plays. I was wondering what team, I guess I was supposed to know. Uh, because George Moriarty is captain. Moriarty being often the man to start them. There is no play which more thoroughly demoralizes an enemy than the double steal. The Tigers hope to play it often in the future. Yeah, this is the kind of ball news we've been needed. Uh, and we are, this is a uh, sporting column, I assume a regular one, pertinent comment on happenings in sportdom by J. Ed Grillo, Grillo, G-R-I-L-L-O. While there may be occasion for disappointment over the fact that there is still doubt, and much of it, as to whether Jim McAleer will be able to strengthen his outfield from the several recruits he retains, the fact remains that he really has been fortunate in picking up valuable young ball players. This, oh yeah, this is referring to the uh, Nationals, our uh, AKA Senators, I guess, on and off, but the Washington Nationals of, uh, I believe they were in the American League at this point. The percentage of players secured since last spring were making good with the Nationals is far above the ordinary. Henry, Cunningham, and Ainsmith, for instance, are a trio who give promise of being stars of the first rank by next fall. And even if one of the new men taken south this spring should fail, McAleer could still feel that on the whole he has fared well, for it is figured that any time a ball club gets one ball player who will help the team out of every ten it tries, it is doing well. But, of course, with the fact generally recognized that the team would stand a chance to be a real contender with a better hitting outfield than it had last season, interest naturally centered in the players secured for trials in these positions. When it became evident that none of the recruits gave promise of being able to take the place of the veterans, a disappointment followed. But who knows that it won't all come out for the best. Perhaps if one or two of the young fielders had shown a flash this spring, they would have supplanted the players now holding down those positions. The veterans might even have disposed of, and then might have happened the slump of the youngsters, as it often does. Perhaps the work of Le Level and Gessler this season will be of such a caliber that there will be ground for rejoicing that none of the youngsters showed a flash during the training season. At any rate, 
Let us hope so. In order to be fortified at first base, should it develop that John Henry's showing this spring was a mere flash in the pan, manager McAleer is sure to carry John a summer lot for a time this season until he has been thoroughly convinced that Henry can keep up for a stride worthy of his retention on first base. There is, of course, nothing to indicate that Henry would not make good when the championship season opens. He has all the earmarks of a splendid first baseman, so of course it will be best to judge him when he faces the pitchers of the rival American League teams and is placed under the strain which the championship season brings with it. With Henry's hitting, Henry hitting around the 300 mark this season, his acquisition will make a wonderful difference in the Nationals playing, for he would not only add much-needed batting strength, but he is fast on the bases and has the spirit which does much to make a ball team winner. In expressing the opinion that his team will win the pennant again this year, Connie Mack is merely sharing the opinion of a large majority of the patrons of American League Baseball. The easy victory of the Athletics last year, and the fact that they made the Cubs look like a lot of minor leaguers, certainly makes them the favorite in the coming campaign. Mack looks to have the best team, and it should have more confidence than ever this year. There is, of course, danger sometimes that a team, after having won a pennant, possesses too much confidence, but that will hardly be the case with the Athletics. Nothing but a remarkable reversal of form on part of several of the players who made a championship team possible last year can beat Max aggregation. That would be the opinion of nearly everyone interested in the sport at this stage of the season, and yet there may be an entirely different aspect on the situation when the campaign is a month or so old. There's not much occasion for finding fault with the assignment of Mullen to help out Connolly in the opening series here, though Mullen makes his debut as an American League umpire. Connolly certainly is a competent man, while Mullen has yet to show that he is not fit to work in this class. Ball teams who make it a practice to growl about the umpires are apt to lose confidence in themselves before a game has been played. Complaint that Cauliflower, an umpire who is not a star, was started and kept on the local grounds for some time longer than is usually allotted to an umpire, brings to mind the reason for this. Cauliflower was appointed on the American League staff because several of the men interested in the Washington club recommended him. President Johnson did not think well of Cauliflower, but appointed him because the local parties insisted that he was competent. Just to prove that these gentlemen to these gentlemen, that they were not experts in the art of selecting umpires, President Johnson kept cauliflower here so that his boosters could get their fill of him, and they did. In the future, there are no recommendations from this quarter apt to be presented at American League headquarters about any umpires. <laughs> yeah. There are really, that there are really few baseball players who ju whose judgment can be relied upon in sizing up material for a major league club is proven in the case of Cliff 
Blankenship, who recommended Chief Swain to the local club. Blankenship had enough Major League experience to lead to the belief that he would know a ball player when he saw one, so that when he wrote on and said that Swain was just the man the Nationals needed in the outfielder, there was no time lost to purchase this player. Swain, however, never was of Major League caliber. In fact, he would find it difficult to hold his own in a Class A league. Blankenship is not different from most players, for there are really few who recognize a ball player when they see one. And moving along, uh, yeah, we're up at the last set of columns, and this is solid baseball from here on in, it looks like. Flames athletics are in better shape than in 1910. Philadelphia writer sizes up world's champions, considers Collins' greatest player in game, barring none. After training the glasses on the athletics, a spectator is convinced that the Mac men are even better than last season when they won the pennant with 97 points to spare, says James uh, Isminger in the North American. Youthful Mac men like Collins, Coombs, Barry, Baker, and Oldring are better this year than last. They are players who are still coming, not the kind who are standing still or going back. Eddie Collins is the same old speed king. Right in the very first inning, he stole second and third in succession and was a sprint marvel all through the game. Edward VIII didn't delay one second to show Philadelphians that he was still there in his chosen field of endeavor. Collins is a confirmed star and will again show heights in second basemanship that no competitor can attain. While dealing a chapter on Collins, it might be added that he is the greatest player in baseball today. He is the Wagner of yesteryear. The only player who might dispute Collins' right to the highest honors is Tyrus Raymond Cobb of Georgia and Michigan. The writer picks Eddie in preference to Tyrus solely because he thinks an infield knockout is more valuable to a team than an outfield knockout. Both are wonders in every tributary of the game, with Cobb slightly the more powerful man with the stick, sensational as the Quaker classicist is in that department. With no more illness in the family, Frank Baker, the trap tickler of the pill, could play even more sensationally than he did last season when that when there wasn't the slightest complaint to make about the third basing at Shibe Park. Look for Baker someday to top the batting list issued every autumn by Bancroft Byron Johnson. The muscular third baseman is a whale at the bat and drives the ball with amazing vigor. Frank made six home runs in four games under Southern Skies and has started off the year as if he is going to ignite the American League. Barry is another baseball progressive who should go better in 1911 than 1910, notwithstanding the good copy he turned out last season. Hogan, a well-put-up California youth, looks like the merchandise. That's a great expression. Looks like the merchandise. If he can shake off base hits from the deliveries of fast-set pitchers, he should resign here indefinitely. He showed enough hitting ability Saturday when he made two clean raps to right and beat one to Hans Lobert. Hogan streaks along the outfield 
turf like a scared flamingo going deep in foul footing for a drive. Hogan's arm is also built for the purpose of stopping the fleet on the paths. If he remains, if he keeps on hitting well, he will remain in left for 150 or so straight performances. Of course, Dan Murphy, the reliable, is the same smooth worker, always getting a 1,000 average in everything he attempts. Old Ring and Lord do capitally in the innings they face the gallery. Luck in baseball breaks even in long campaign. Deacon Philippe gives his opinion on breaks of the game. Luck cannot be relied upon to win. This out of Hot Springs, Arkansas, April 6th. Deacon Philippe sat in a group of players discussing lucky pitchers the other night. Various opinions were expressed about this, that, or the other slabmen of the present or of olden times who could pull out games with the horseshoe or, on the other hand, pitch wonderful ball and lose out through the jinx and constant bad luck in the breaks or the weakness of his team's attack. Quote, the fellows who kept winning games might have had a large measure of luck, but they must have had the goods too, unquote, interposed Philippe. Luck will change for better or for worse regularly in any man's pitching career as in anything else. It is silly to figure that any pitcher goes through life with continued hard luck or always carries with him a streak in his favor that can't be broken. There is one kind of pitcher who really is beset by hard luck, and that is a good man on a poor team. Any brainy manager always tries to match his best pitchers against the best that is put up by the other team. Take a team away down in the race playing New York, for instance. Matthewson is to work for New York. It's a sense that the manager of the other team will work his best man, probably the only good dependable pitcher on his staff. His team is helpless before Manny, and he must have at least one or two runs to win his games. He loses and is charged with the loss. Take this pitcher during a whole season. The shade is against him, and it is a good, big shade at that. He is pitted against the best, and for him, and for with him, the manager calculates that there will be a chance to win, even against, against the best pitchers of the opposition. With an ordinary or a poor pitcher, there seems little chance. The close of the season finds him away down among the pitchers. His worth can be little can little be realized by the public under the present system of judging a pitcher by games won and games lost, and nothing else. There's your hard luck, man, and there's no such silly thing as jinx or hoodoo about it either. He simply is unfortunate in that the advantage is against him. Games count, of course, but games won and lost do not make a good figuring basis to judge a pitcher. See how a pitcher who is with a team that is way down in the race often is taken up by a team that is one, two, or three in the race. He was little known by the public in general, though he probably had gone along for a couple years pitching fine ball and losing games that would have been credited to him with a good club behind him. The public would get a better idea of a pitcher's effectiveness if the number of runs scored against him, together with the number of hits, the number of passes he has issued, and so on, 
were recorded. It would be interesting to take his strikeouts into consideration, but they would be secondary in importance. Strikeout pitchers are not always the best, but it is interesting to see how many times a pitcher has made his opponent's fan during a season. Games won and lost are no more essential in figuring on the work of a good pitcher than the number of strikeouts to his credit. It takes more than luck for any pitcher to win games. Luck may win him one or two maybe in succession, but he can't depend on the horseshoe to always carry him through. Wise words. Yeah, we're getting... Don't you think we're getting a much richer uh, picture here? And this one more. Baseball law again defies precedent in fines of Cubs. Jim Delahanty thinks $100 ought to be maximum amount club could take from player. Indianapolis, April 6th. Jim Delahanty says that any ball player who accepts a fine of $600 and works it out ought to have his head examined. His declaration followed the dispatch from Nashville, which told how manager Chance of the Cubs had fined Zimmerman and Ritchie each $600 for staying out all nights and reporting showing signs of wear the next morning. $600 is absolutely too much money. The limit ought to be $100, says Jim. Beyond that, any ball player should refuse to pay and should carry his case to the civil courts. My brother Frank was fined heavily by the Cleveland Club. He consulted a lawyer who told him that his contract gave the club no right to fine him or even farm him. He insisted that Frank sue for the money and collect pay until given his release. Frank did so, and the Cleveland Club recently settled the case out of court. Huey Jennings took issue with Delaney Delahanty. Have I been saying Delahanty? I hope so. Regarding the justice of the Zimmerman fine, He called his attention to Zimmerman's bad record and the fact that not satisfied to dissipate alone, Zimmerman insists on taking another player with him each time. Huey believes that Chance did the proper thing and commends his stand. To find a player so large a sum is really revolutionary, and all the more so when the fine is assessed before the player has even become eligible to draw a cent of his salary. It is taken for granted that the fines on the night-walking cubs will go not because they are legal, according to the law of the land, but because the difference between real law and baseball law. In occasions where baseball teams, players, and managements are involved, the laws of baseball take precedent. The National Commission pays no attention, whatever, even to the rulings of the Supreme Court of the United States. Powerful words. And I really do hope I I was saying Jim Delahanty. I'm pretty sure I was. And uh, yeah, that that that's the sports page, uh, the alternative sports page. I mean, technically, we could possibly even do both, although then we would start getting a little redundancy. Uh, we could go back and forth at times. If you have any opinion either way, otherwise, I'm just going to wing it. 
as, as I always do. Uh, but any comments, any um, factoids, anything interesting, uh, just uh, kick it on forward. Uh, drop me an email at apqr.torc at gmail.com. And um, yeah, we're moving right along. Opening day is coming right up here. So uh, hold on to your hats and um, set the controls for the heart of the fun.